Hey, good morning, everyone. Let's get rolling here today. So all this school year, we are looking at what it means to be different. God makes you different. If you are born again in Christ, you are different. There is no getting around it. It's inevitable. It is just the byproduct of the Spirit of God working in you. It just changes you. Those of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you think differently, you act differently, you value differently, you prioritize differently. And even though you're still the same you, there's something different inside of you. Those of you maybe newer to the journey, you will discover this with Christ. Maybe you felt that right away with him, but maybe not. And there's no um, absolute way on how this process works. But just rest assured that there is something that God is forming, doing, and working in you that is going to make you a different human being than who you currently are. And the way that I like to think about it is he's going to make you more of who God designed you to be, and that without Christ, you're almost a shadow of yourself. And so what we're doing all school year is going through that, and specifically here at 9, we're diving deeper into some, uh, truth be told, just ways that Christians have thought about this over the last 2,000 years, from the most recent times to all the way back to like first and second century stuff and everything in between, because there's a lot we can learn from those who have traveled this journey and wrestled with how God has been forming them and calling them and leading them. And so last week I introduced you to a document called the Didache. And the Didache, it's a Greek word that simply means the teaching. What teaching? Well, more specifically, it was called the teaching of the 12 apostles. Not because they were probably going like house church to house church teaching this, but it was like the next generation taking what they learned from those apostles and disseminating it. And and it really functions as the earliest like how to do church manual that you're going to find in Christian history. Some will date it even older than some of the New Testament documents itself, which is kind of a mind blow. Some will do it like really, really early second century. So you're talking like 100, maybe 110. You, you, You find other second century authors already quoting this thing. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's pretty cool. It's just this six page little like, how do you do church? How do you be a Christian? And the way that you may want to think about this is like a catechism. You know, if you grew up in any kind of denominational church, you probably had like a catechism class at some point in your life. And all a catechism is, is it's a teaching manual. Here's the basics of the Christian faith. Well, this thing that I handed out to you last week is basically that. How were these early Christians teaching pagans who were attracted to Christ and coming into the church community how to do church, how to be church, how to live the different kind of life. That's what it's all about. Make sense? So, I distributed them last week. I emailed them out if you are registered with us. If you're not registered with this 9 o'clock crew, that's totally cool. So glad that you're here. But if you want to get this stuff digitally and get like reminders and stuff like that, definitely hop online and register. It's our adult ministry page. But I have 10 extra copies here today. If you didn't bring it, didn't get it, and if you want it. So raise your hand and I'll get it coming around here. Bill, here you go, brother. The way this copied is you have to kind of like flip it up and read. Just follow the pageation on it, the page numbers on it. You'll be good. What do we got over here? I'll tell you what. Jared, can you just like work this side of the room, hand them out? And so... 
What I shared with you last time was, you know, I don't plan to sit here and like for three weeks go through this like line by line. It's a pretty quick read, it's a pretty clean read. But what I wanted to do instead was jump into areas, hopefully, that you highlighted, areas that you found interesting. Now, off the bat, I'm gonna say I have got no delusion that whatever we talked about last week that anyone has ever followed up on and ever will in the history of humanity. So, if you need like five minutes, I am gonna give that to you right now to scan it, review it, do whatever you need, and if you didn't bring it, don't have it digitally, and didn't raise your hand, well, I don't know, like watch the announcement loop or something like that. We'll circle back in just a few. All right, here we go. So here's what I'd like to do with this. Again, pretty short, pretty clean, pretty straightforward, right? At the same time, it's pretty interesting, I think, to see the issues that they might be dealing with uh, of all the things that you could talk about in the Bible. What are they choosing to talk into? One key theological word that I think is important to know to understand the Didache, okay? And the theological term is noob, all right? You, you ever hear of a newbie? All right, a noob is short for a newbie, right? This is written to noobs. Make sense? These are people who do not understand Christianity, do not know Christianity, have not been living the different kind of life. And as we go through, I'll just point out a few things where you go, oh yeah, this is written, this is something you would say to a newbie in the faith, not per se something you would say to someone else. I'll give you one example on this, then we'll jump into the ones that you find interesting. If you look on page 152, all the way at the bottom, it's paragraph six. What they would consider like verse three. You see that? It's like the last two or three sentences. Here's what it says. Now concerning food, bear what you are able, but in any case, keep strictly away from meat sacrifice to idols, for it involves the worship of dead gods. Now, is that bringing to mind to anyone here New Testament teaching on the same topic? Marilyn, it's kind of clicking with you. Anyone else? Is anyone going, I, yeah, Aaron, you, you're kind of picking up on it. Anyone else kind of uh, on the other side of this equation going, I don't know what this is about at all. And please own that right now. Bruce, all right, thanks. You can read 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. And what Paul is doing is he's writing to the Corinthian church, which is a very secular culture, a very pagan culture. And one of the issues that was um, posing a point of confusion in the church was, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Or can we eat food that has been used in some kind of pagan ritual? Well, that sounds pretty odd in the 21st century, but it was actually pretty mundane and ordinary in the first century. Because in the first century, they did not have Jewel, they did not have Safeway, they did not have Walmart superstores. So the way that you got the majority of your meat is you went to the town market. But the market, you have to think more something like the Woodstock Farmer's Market than going to a brick and mortar store. Now who here has been to the Woodstock Farmer Market or any farmer market? So what is typical at a farmer's market? You have all these different stands that are setting up their shop and they're selling oftentimes food or produce 
and you can often buy even parts of it to eat right there, but certainly to take home, right? Well, where did most of your meat come from in the ancient world? Because it wasn't prevalent like today. Well, it came from sacrifices. What people would do is if they went to a, if they were involved in some kind of pagan rite or pagan ritual or the state, you know, religion or whatever it was, you would buy an animal or take an animal, you would sacrifice it to one of the local gods at one of the local temples, but sacrificing it didn't mean that you would just like, like bury the thing or burn the whole thing up. You would offer part of it to the god or the temple institution, but most of it would be for sale. And so the way that these temples would support themselves is they would open up shop at the farmer's market and that's where you would get your meat. Well, so if you want to have meat, the reality is the meat you're buying was probably involved in some kind of sacrifice. Well, some people were sitting there going, that kind of causes me a crisis of conscience here. What do I do about that? Because I don't want to participate in anything that's supporting any other kind of like false religion or participating in that. And particularly if there's spiritual forces or demons um, that are deceiving people through these idols and this kind of idolatry. Make sense? There were other people going, this is stupid. This is nothing. These people are just deluded. There's nothing wrong with this meat. God is a lot bigger than any of these other gods. God's a lot bigger than any of these rituals. I don't have to be afraid of eating this. I can just eat it. It's actually a very pertinent question and how to navigate about a thousand other issues in life, isn't it? Do I buy this product and support this organization that might have values that differ from my own? Or do I go, hey, it's not causing me to sin. What's the big deal? See what I mean? How does, and I'm going to ask those of you who are familiar with the passage, because Paul gets into that in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. You read it on your own. How does this different than 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 in terms of the advice given? Those of you who know it, do you, have you picked up on it? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Here, don't do it, right? Just, there's no, uh, there's no qualification to it. Just don't do it, right? Paul doesn't come out that way. He says, well, I, I know that meat sacrificed to an idol is nothing. So if it doesn't cause you a crisis of conscience, if it doesn't cause your brother or sister in the faith to stumble or sin in some kind of way, hey, eat away right? But if it is causing someone else to sin or be deceived or troubling their faith in some way, then he's like, well, you know, step away from it. In fact, in one place, they'll go, I'll never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble. But why would the Didache come out and not qualify it like that? Because it's for noobs, right? And when you're dealing with noobs, you got to kind of cut clean. You got to get simple. You've got to deal with the things that probably have not matured yet in their faith and go, you just need to make a radical departure from this. You need to set your priorities over here. Have any of you ever had one of these moments where God convicted you to give something up, throw something away, or cut something out that later you can look back on and go, 
Oh, man, because that wouldn't be a problem for me today. No, it's still a problem for you, Aaron? Yeah, yeah. all right, all right, well then good, keep, keep the course. Anyone else, you know what I'm talking about, though? Like, like in your, your faith walk, where something was, am, am I alone in this? Or are you guys just very sanctified? Okay, sanctified people, all right. Let's move to uh, the examples that uh, you found. What are the things that you found curious, interesting, confrontational, whatever? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, so let's look at it. No, yeah, yeah, great, man. I appreciate you bringing it up. Go over to uh, page 155. This starts at paragraph 11 where he starts talking about apostles and prophets and how are we supposed to figure this out and judge it. Off the bat, if this is next generation, it's fascinating that they still consider there to be apostles even though the original apostles are long dead. So apostle becomes an office, not just something that's fixed to those original 12 or 13, if you include Paul, of course, that existed in the time of Jesus. And an apostle, of course, in the pecking order, even in New Testament era, always had kind of like the highest spiritual authority, if you can put it that way. But let's just kind of look at this together and see what it says. So if anyone should come, well, okay, let's back up. Go one verse before verse 11, because I find it interesting. But permit the prophets to give thanks however they wish. Right before that line, he prescribes how you're supposed to pray. Because have you ever found that sometimes you don't know how you're supposed to pray? And people who are new to the Christian faith don't often know how to pray. So if you were brought up in a Christian school system or going to Sunday school or things like that, what do they often teach you? These fixed prayers, right? Because you don't really know what you're doing, and it's meant to help shape you and guide you and form you. But of course, the idea is that as you mature in your faith, you can pray naturally in a way that would be very God-pleasing, and you don't need to, to, to rely on the fixed prayers anymore. Does that make sense? So here's all these fixed prayers. Like when you're doing communion, pray like this. When you gather together, pray like this. But if a prophet comes among you, you know, these, these dudes know what they're talking about. So let, let, let them go free form, right? They can, they can bust their rhymes however they want. <laughs> then it keeps going. So if anyone should come and teach you all these things that have just been mentioned above, welcome him. So what is the gauge of someone being a spiritual leader? Is what they're teaching in conformity to what you have learned and what has been handed down. This is called the test of orthodoxy. And it was actually even applied to what books got included in the Bible. 
because the teaching of the faith preceded the Bible of the faith, if that makes sense, or certainly the New Testament of the faith. And so, should this book be in? Should this book be in? Is it in conformity with what has been handed down to you by the apostolic teaching of what is true about Jesus? And sometimes it was pretty clear cut. Sometimes it was a little gray, and they had to make uh, decisions, and they often chose conservatively in those times. And it isn't just true of what books in the Bible, but people too. Should I listen to that YouTube channel? Should I follow that radio preacher? Should I uh, really put a lot of stock into what that author is writing? Um, how about this series of TikToks that came out? I mean, it's just as pertinent today. Who do you listen to? Well, he's given you a guide right here. He goes on. But if the teacher himself goes astray and teaches a different teaching that undermines this, don't listen to him. However, if his teaching contributes to righteousness and knowledge of the Lord, welcome him as you would the Lord. Is it building you up? Is it leading you astray? Is it in conformity? Is it off the beaten path? Now, concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord. Yeah, you see them? Treat them like you would treat Jesus himself. As a church leader, I really like this. But here's where it goes off the rails for me. I just had a 20-year thing last week, right? But, if he is not, but, but he is not to stay more than one day. Unless there is need, in which case he may stay another Okay, so man, you get like 104 fever and you're dying, you get one more day, man, 24 hours, you know? But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. <laughs> and when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Isn't that great? Like that, that would solve the whole televangelism crisis right there, you know? Wouldn't it? But it's, it's such a different world, isn't it? Are these guys coming peddling God for profit? Are these guys coming just trying to make a buck off you? Or are these guys truly motivated by the Lord to bring something they feel commissioned by God to bring to you and looking to lift you up as a congregation rather than take advantage of you? I mean, I think you can read between the lines and how it makes it very clear, right? Because, hey, we've all had squatters in our life. And we've all seen how this goes off the rails. So, yeah, Mike, I would agree with you in, in, in part. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, if you come from the liturgical or denominational back, okay, Catholic. Sure. And, and so, and then the question remains, how come, and if you didn't hear Mike, take the Catholic Church, um, because they probably have the most, like, like, formulated and ancient hierarchy of any church body, though every church body has hierarchy, so don't go getting self-righteous on them. Um, going, there's been popes that have been more of the devil um, than of Christ. And the Catholic Church would even admit that that's not just like a Martin Luther line calling the Pope the Antichrist. Or something like that. So, religious leaders, you wouldn't follow, how'd you say it, out of a paper bag? Why would you be in a paper bag with, with a religious leader, just out of curiosity? I don't know. That's another question for another time.
Yeah. But you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. You know, kind of. Uh, here's how I'm going to challenge it because I, I am actually with you in spirit, and I do think that even this document is trying to challenge some of that hierarchical thinking because it's they're not able to sit here and rest on their laurels. Uh, you know, it's it's what they're giving proves their worth. They're not here to profit, and you see how this has gone off the rails in every church body, but you do, and I would challenge this, you do see already church hierarchy in the New Testament being set up. Ephesians 4 is a great example, where Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers. That's one example. You'll see Paul like commending churches when he says, I sent my servant or my son Timothy to you, and you were to welcome him as you would welcome me or welcome the Lord. And you'll see him write about it in the travelings of Peter and, and so, so it isn't what I would say novel territory here. But yeah, good insight. Yeah, Mike, other Mike. Matt, Matt sorry, dude, brother, sorry, Matt. Hey, but, you know, ultimately we're supposed to pray for these leaders and also to test the spirit. And, you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, you know, test it to see what these men really are and what they stand for. And we know when that Holy Spirit moves, we're to be obedient. Yeah, and did you guys catch that? Anyone that weird line in there about testing the prophets? Uh, Twelve. Which which a flag? What, what, give, give us chapter and verse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't see it lining up completely. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the question. Who here has ever taught elementary school? And I don't mean that you were an elementary school certified teacher. You taught Sunday school or you taught like VBS or something like that. Right? Climb into the headspace there a little bit. How do you teach a kid? How do you teach a kid that challenges you on everything? How do you teach that kid that just wants to test you, push you, and challenge everything you say? Right? Have you ever been in an adult membership class at a church? Have you ever been in one of those where there's always, some, there's always someone in one Bible class who is there not to learn? They're there because they want to kind of spread their peacock feathers and show off their knowledge and always have the last word and always bring correction and always do that. Okay, we know that personality type, right? How, how do you teach, guide, or set up rule for someone like that? Because who here would agree you need to test the prophets? You need to test what people say. You bet you need to test what people say. But who here would say that sometimes under the guise of testing, there's actually another agenda? Or an inability to even know how to test to begin with. 
If you don't know anything about the, ta- the faith, how do you test what someone is saying? So, so you see the complexities of it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like trying to get into the headspace. What are they dealing with there in trying to guide? But yeah, harsh language. Like, man, you're like committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit if you challenge these prophets, right? Craziness. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but kick them out on these things. And if it's not in rule with the faith, right? Yeah, Gary. One fifty one. Yeah, you see that? Is everyone with us? Page 151, it's paragraph four, and then it's the, the paragraph underneath the big, like, bold four is number five. Do not be someone who stretches out his hands is how the, sentence, how the paragraph starts. You see that? And then you get in. If you earned something by working with your hands, you shall give a ransom for your sins. Now, how can that be read? Like, 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 what's that leave you feeling? Like, how would you translate that? Or, uh... What's that? By your salvation, right? If you made some bucks, here, pay your way in. And there's certainly been an abuse of that in Christian history. Let's back up and let me pose another approach to this. Do not be someone who stretches out his hands to receive, but withdraws when it comes to giving. What's the basic meaning there? Be generous. Don't be someone who takes and doesn't give. Be generous, right? Don't be someone who's just me, 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 take, 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 parasite, 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 but be someone who also is just as eager. And of course, Jesus says things like this. It's more blessed to give than receive, right? Paul commends the, Corinthians, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, what is it, 7, 8, and 9. I want to say, for their generosity, even in the midst of hard circumstances. So you see that as a general theme throughout the Bible. Um, You'll also see, like, uh, Paul talked to the Thessalonian church, going, if someone doesn't work, don't let them eat. Don't let people in your church just take, take, take. Um, You know, you're not a part of us if you're not living that generous spirit and kind of life. And then he goes, if you earn something by working with your hands, you shall give a ransom for your sins. So here's the million dollar question. And, and get yourself out of biblical thinking for a moment. Fundamentally, what's a ransom? It's payment. It's payment to who? Like I go to the store and I pay a ransom on like a loaf of bread and a dozen eggs? No, what's a, what's a ransom? Okay, it, it's, so, it's something you pay, right? to get someone or something back. If someone is holding you hostage or someone that you love hostage or something hostage, we can call it blackmail. Even I don't think it's too far of a stretch to even think about it in terms of property that way. Like, like who's ever like clicked on the wrong link and you've got some you know, malware on your computer and they locked you out of your computer and they said, if you send us $4,000, um, we'll release your data. To you. Has that ever happened? I know someone in this church that, that happened to, and it was the kind of data, it was work-related data, 
um, that they just couldn't not do it. And FBI's like, pay them. <laughs> you know, we're not going to find them. You want your data? I don't know what to tell you. Um, that's a ransom, right? And so the prevailing Christian idea in the early centuries of the church was that we are held captive or in slavery by the devil, by the forces of darkness. And what Christ's death affects is a ransom. So somehow and in some way, by Jesus dying, a ransom has been paid so that you are released from ownership of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the ownership or kingdom of light and life. Now, the New Testament is clear, and I would argue the early church is absolutely clear on this, that this is what Christ did for you. This is something that is not in your power. So if we are going to establish that, and I am asking you to take my word for that just for the moment, if we were to establish that as being the basic belief in nature of fact, then what might this mean if it isn't buying our salvation? How else could it be interpreted? How would you do it? Yeah, go for it. Well, maybe it's, on a, I hate to say this, but on a day-to-day basis, you know, productive work in God's kingdom, you're kind of ransoming, ransoming, ransoming your, yourself away from your sin on a day-to-day basis. It's not necessarily saving you, but it's kind of, keeping you one step ahead of, of a sin or sins that might cause you to stray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, might be one way to look at it. Great. What else? How else would you maybe wrestle with this? Because I know the language, if you're a Protestant, it gives you hives. <laughs> yeah, Aaron. Well, you know, later on you see maybe a wrong extension of a passage like this where you're buying indulgences and getting paying to get masses said for you and uh, things of that nature. And of course, that's what Martin Luther railed against and what led to the whole Protestant Reformation. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Well, what, if you sin, what if your sin involves harming others? So you're indebted to them because you owe them a sin, whether Yeah, what if your sin involved harming others? Um, is it making something right again? Okay, interesting. Maybe pay your credit card bill? Maybe. But all of this still, it seems to be swimming in the stream. Didn't Jesus pay it all? Right? So let me use a Jesus parable, and let's see if we can frame it. So Jesus tells a parable about a man who owned a ruler. I think it was 100,000 talents. This is more wealth than you could ever imagine, that the trillionaires of this world could not meet this debt or obligation, if you will. And so he tells a story about how this king calls one of his servants to account and says, I demand the payment now, and if you don't pay it, I'm throwing you into prison. Servant falls on his knees before the king. He begs and pleads, and in his mercy, the king forgives the debt. Unheard of. Imagine owing a $150 billion debt to someone and then them just going, it's covered. Then it says that same servant is walking along the road 
and someone who owes him, and you have to be very careful with the language here because the NIV footnote will throw you down the complete wrong path, owes him money too. And he owes him a hundred denarii. Now your NIV footnote will say something like that means a few bucks. No, it doesn't. A denarii was a day's wage. I, I don't know what you're getting paid if that's a few bucks, uh, but get a new job. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. What's 100 days wage? Well, if 270 days is your average five-day work week, right, you're talking about five months of pay. I think that's considerable. How about you? This servant owes him five months of pay. Now, it, would you agree that pales in comparison to the 100,000 talent debt? Same scenario happens. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll get you the money. I know I owe you this, but what does the servant do? Start strangling the guy, right? Throw him and his family into prison. Well, word gets out, and it comes back to the king. And the king is enraged and demands that that servant pays every debt, every ounce of the $100,000 debt right? Or 100,000 talent debt and won't get out until it's paid in full. And Jesus gives a punchline to it. You could read this. It's Matthew 18, I believe. If I'm off a chapter, forgive me, it might be 17. But he says, unless you forgive as God has forgiven you, basically you're going to be treated the same way. That's Jesus' words. If you don't like it, I don't like it. That's another matter. But let me take that same principle and extend it out. Would you agree that God has given you more and paid more for you than you could ever possibly imagine or be able to do on your own? So how can you also then not be a person who gives generously? Because the whole context here is giving, right? Don't be someone who just, gimme, gimme, gimme. No, be someone who gives. And in some kind of strange way, they seem to talk about this as participating in your own ransom. God has, God has paid everything for me. God, what can I give back to you? Am I giving back to God because it's affecting my ransom? Is it because it's, it's needed to pay the price? No, not at all. Put another way, are good works necessary? And if you're struggling, you bet they are. And you've never read a word of the New Testament if you think otherwise. Good works are not optional. Christ never makes them optional. They don't save you. But if you're not doing good, you are not born again. Jesus' words, you will know them by their fruit. And if it gives you hives as a Protestant, I don't know what to tell you. Cut out Matthew. Cut out Luke. Cut out Mark. Cut out the half of Paul that Protestants don't want to read if you're that flavor of Protestant. And by the way, I'm not saying anything that Kelvin, Luther, Zwingli, or any of the others wouldn't say themselves. Good works are necessary. They won't save you, but they are not optional in the kingdom of God. They are demands of obedience. So in a way, the idea that it might be getting at here is that Because God has given his all for you, are you going to live the same way? Are you going to live differently? Are you going to participate in that? Are you going to have the change of heart that leads you to be a generous person in this specific instance 
who is quick to give, and in a sense, Lord, you've ransomed me. Can I ever pay you back? You're kind of showing a life of gratitude, of giving back to him when you give to other people. You follow the logic of this? You stew on that. And what we'll do is we'll pick up next week, and I want to round this out in one more week, um, so whatever we didn't get to, flag, and we can bring this subject up again, if you'd like, and uh, see what takeaways we can gain from the Didache and what things might be chaff and what things might just be left better relegated to church history, right? Cool. Sign up. If you need this, email me, and I will get you a digital copy. Um, I don't plan to bring copies next week, so like, keep it in your car or something like that because I'm not running the, the copier again to redistribute one more time. Thanks for coming. God bless.